actually a little worried, I have to confess, um, because as uh, my wife, my daughter, my colleagues know, I'm, I'm turning, and I have repeatedly tell them, I'm turning uh, 14 in two weeks. So I'm one of the saddest people in the room, <laughs> which means also I might show sadness. To compensate, I'm going to talk about one of the happiest countries in uh, Latin America, supposedly, um, and I, th I hope that one thing compensates the other. Before I start, however, um, given that um, I did help organize the conference and um, I have been involved with CAF, uh, and I will only be uh, this moment in the, in the podium, let me actually thank and extend the thanks that we have all said um, to not just President, but Professor Enrique Garcia, um, to Andres Rugeles, which has been instrumental, to Guillermo Fernandez, which from um, the office in uh, Europe helps us, and also to Germán Rios, that unfortunately couldn't come here. Um, I want to change totally directions in a way um, and, and have a, a very different presentation in, in several ways. I'm moving you from statistics to actually a much more qualitative presentation. I'm moving you from the present to the past in many ways because I'm talking of a model over the long run. Um, I'm concentrating on structural factors much more than the individual type of analysis that we have had. And as I said, I'm moving you to a single country. Um, this is because I'm going to talk about work, sorry, the, the, the actual book is green, so you can see that our <laughs> slides are not pinky. Um, the, the, I'm going to, sh to discuss a book that was not about the middle class, but that, as you will see in a second, speaks a lot to what I think are debates about thinking about what the middle class country and what the middle class models represent. And this is work with Juliana Martinez-Franzoni um, on the Costa Rican case. I, of course, do it with a lot of trepidation uh, because I have um, in the room someone that knows much more than I do about the Costa Rican case, someone I interviewed already 12 years ago, Leonardo Garnier, um, and someone that has inspired much of this work. So if it's all wrong, he will tell you in the first minute of his presentation later. Um, basically, we, um, we were invited by UNSRI to do one of the projects on thinking about um, development and how development is is um, developing. I think this actually speaks a lot to how we are framing the middle class, implicitly, explicitly, during today. And I think that the two important things I want to say is that for every citizen, but clearly for A, the middle class, but also for creating coalitions, the goals are two. One is to get good jobs, to get um, formal. Actually, I would argue formal, and we can discuss this, but I think Pablo's comments was important. That's, actually, I do wonder whether more than income, the formality itself is part of what middle class involves, given that, as Guillermo told us, uh, the concept of risk becomes extremely important in that concept. And the second thing that people want, and the middle class more than anyone, is to actually have good services. We saw today that they have to go to the market, but I would argue they have to. Uh, much of Latin Americans would be more than happy to use the state if the state was providing good services. And I think that is something I want to bring to the discussion. So our starting point, our question is about uh, how do you achieve those two things? What we call market incorporation, how do you create good jobs, and what you call social incorporation. How is that you are able to reduce risk? And again, I think uh, those two things are important because if we agree all of us is that implicitly when we talk about the middle class, we are talking about groups that have less risk, that have less potential to be poor again. And again, in the concept of ability that Luis Felipe um, discussed, that became very important. 
The problem is that all across the developing world, um, and clearly in Latin America, achieving the double incorporation, being able to both create good jobs for a majority of the population, but also social services, has been rather elusive. So when you think about the starting uh, since the 1950s, you um, have both, in both cases, a rather segmented type of outcomes. That is, you were able to incorporate a narrow middle class. The middle class in Latin America is not new. What the only thing is we had a very different middle class before. And um, you were also able to incorporate in a truncated, segmented way also into the social system. And we argue in the book, and we argue that Costa Rica was one of the exceptions. Whether it continues to be one of the exceptions is not something we can discuss later. And it was because it was able to do both things relatively well uh, in the process especially of its golden age, if you want, from the 1950s to um, the beginning of the 1980s. There you have uh, informal rates um, taking us, with all the problems that this has, as a share of the self-employed in the economic activity. And you have that Costa Rica, is true, was relatively low to start with, but remains low across the time. And by 1980, is the country that actually had lower levels of self-employment and highest levels of formal uh, paid jobs in the whole Latin America. The welfare story is even better uh, in many ways. Fernando Filgueira, um, one of the prominent researchers on social policy in Latin America, has said that probably Costa Rica was the only truly although embryonic, social democratic um, welfare state during this period. Um, however, and uh, if you were paying attention, and I hope you were, to all the presentations today, you maybe were not paying a lot of attention to Costa Rica. I was because I worked hard, but you saw that actually if, if we look at today, it doesn't, it's, it's still a very good performer, but it's not a star uh, uh, by any means. And that's because the last 20, 25 years have been much more problematic despite efforts in several areas, including education. So for example, informality actually increased from 20% based on other measures in the 1980s to all the way to 35% in 2006. So in a way, what I want to explain is both the success but also why the model has increasing problem weaknesses, to then conclude um, trying to think about how this informs part of the debate that I think we want to have today, not just about the small numbers, if you want, but actually about trends, models, um, and implications. I'm more interested in um, the underlying political economy, as it will be a second, but I think actually it makes sense to start first with policies. So it makes sense to think about what policies actually allow for that process to take place. And I think it's important um, to think that between 1950 and 1980, um, the role of the state in the Costa Rican success was extremely important. And it was in a way, in some of the ways that it was in the whole rest of, Central, of Latin America. So it was import substitution, etc. but in a very particular way. Costa Rica was able actually to um, have, sorry, before import substitution, to expand the state in a very significant way. So the state became both the provider of services, but the creator of employment that led to that market incorporation. So public employment increased from 6.2% of the total in 1952, all the way to 18% 30 years later. The second was 
um, the process of sectoral modernization. This would be what is more this more standard type of incentives, but incentives that were very particular in one way, which is that they actually promoted not just large firms, but also put more attention than in other countries in small and medium firms and corporations. So for example, the number of cooperatives uh, increased significantly, and by 1985, they represented around 11% of GDP. And when you take productivity with all the problems that these indicators have, actually small and medium firms increased productivity faster than in this period than the large um, companies. I'm not suggesting by any means that large firms were not supported by the state, that there was no discrimination in some areas. I'm just suggesting that they pay more attention than other countries to that element. The social story is actually much more interesting in many ways uh, because it's more unique and also because it allows me to open a parenthesis and to, to discuss a little uh, something with what Luis Felipe said, although I think he will not agree with me. Uh, basically, the Costa Rican success in health and pensions was based first on the creation of social insurance, but social insurance that, contrary to other countries, included everyone in the same um, in the same pool. Um, so actually, um, the uh, Caja Costarricense had just one fund for everyone. You didn't have a fund for the military and another for manufacturing producers, uh, workers, etc. You actually had everyone being included in the same way. You also had that it started by incorporating first the lower middle class, uh, and then it started to then expand um, to others. And social insurance then became very important for a reason that I think sometimes economists when think about incentives forget, which is politically, it was much easier to um, raise social insurance uh, contributions, payroll contributions, than any other kind of tax. And in fact, Costa Rica is a very, still today a very um, underperformer or bad performer as the rest of the region in terms of uh, income taxes, for example, but not in terms of social insurance. But the other thing that it did and that is picked to the type of coalitions that we want to create is that by the 1970s, when it realized that some of the poor had not been included in that process, it tried to bring them along, but not through specific programs, independently of the ministries as we do now, not for the program for the poor, but a program that, is, that tried to give incentives for the poor, help the poor to incorporate into the system that already existed. So it was positive discrimination, if you want, but not by creating a different set of institutions. These are the institutions for the poor and these institutions for everyone else, as was the case of the Southern Corn, as one could argue is the case of conditional cash transfers today. But it did it by giving, for example, um, support and the rural sector to then bring those people into the caja. More interestingly, and again here the discussion about funding, it did it by cross-subsidies. So it actually used the social insurance contributions to fund some of those positive discrimination. Again, something, some, the type of cross-subsidies that economists um, are always very worried about. And again, I'm not misplacing the, the importance of incentives. I'm just th thinking that this type of long-term expansion of resources requires to think about the political economy as well. Um, I haven't looked at the, so I, um, um, so if only five minutes, let me just say, that tensions start in the 1980s um, and start around a model that breaks down in different ways, that it tries to promote foreign direct investment, but at the same time, it, um, uh, by trade liberalizing, it forgets some of the companies, etc. Because I have only five minutes, let me 
concentrate then on the whys. Um, these are policies, but what are the underlying elements behind that policies? And I think that underlying, uh, well, and the, the traditional story would be one that is because Costa Rica was historically very unequal, very equal in the distribution of land that led to more democratic institutions and it led to being um, happy ever after. Uh, I, uh, what we, Julian and I tried to say is that actually, no, um, 1950, after the, the Civil War in 1948, very significant things are changing in Costa Rica. And again, just because I don't have uh, much time, let me summarize how is that in the process of a state building. What we argue is that a new elite emerged after uh, a um, crisis or in 1948, and it's an, an elite that, that is based on uh, upper middle class small entrepreneurs, small landowners, um, people that actually needed the state for their own expansion. So you have, for example, that um, Costa Rica nationalized the banking sector. And to a large extent, it, it does it because that new elite needed, this, needed resources that otherwise were going to go to the traditional landowning elite. It also needed to expand the state. It needed to have the state as a source of power itself. And those two things end up benefiting the creation of a new middle class. But it's, and I think it's important, it's not that the policies by themselves wanted to, it's that we always have to think about the characteristics of the elite and how those elites interact with other social forces. Um, again, I could discuss this much more, um, but, but the main message is this, this very much, this idea that the elite, if you want, the, the middle class or segments of the middle class becomes part of the political elite, they use the state to expand their own resources, but in that process, they end up benefiting and creating a whole political economy that creates jobs and that creates services for the rest of the population. Now, why does this, why there is tensions? Of course, some of the tensions are things that we know, the Washington Consensus, the debt crisis, things that are common to the rest of the region. I think what is unique to Costa Rica is that by the 1980s, the, that elite that had required the state is increasingly diversifying. And again, I, I, I remember um, in that interview in 2002, Carlo telling me there's people pulling in all kinds of directions. But basically there, are, there were some that still needed the state for their own uh, survival expansion, and there were some that had been sufficiently successful and therefore wanted to either expand to the regional Central American market or they wanted to build links to transnational corporations. And this also means that policy totally bifurcates. We have a social policy that is in many ways uh, being defended by the middle class, but then we have part of the economic reforms that are actually for that new, um, new elite that wants to um, export, um, et cetera, et cetera. And we therefore have a very inconsistent measures. Some of you, especially the economists in the room, say this was a very nice um, story. Um, but it's a nice story. How does that speak to any of the things that we want to, we are talking today? So let me actually try um, to speak um, to that. I think the first thing is that um, in policy terms, we get very excited about the middle class because we think that the middle class has certain characteristics, sorry, a middle class society has certain characteristics. 
It's not just because there's 10% versus 12%, which is important, but it's also because of what that implies in the long run. And again, uh, Luis Felipe said it very clear when immediately we think about Europe, right? Immediately what we have in many of the discussions that are taking place is the idea that Europe developed through middle, middle class that created other cross-class cross -class coalitions. And therefore, that's why I think that in addition to income, we really have to think about intrinsic to that process, what type of services we are creating, what type of jobs and the, their format we are creating, and therefore also what um, type of coalitions we are creating. Um, this requires both, as I said, social and market incorporation, and um, it requires, um, it, it, it will uh, prevent a continuous expansion of the state, at least in the Costa Rican case, not because of economic growth only, but because of the type of policies that were being created in, in other areas as well. I think this also um, requires to think about two things. One is um, the class coalitions that again has been implicit in the discussion, but has said how do we design policies so that this new middle class will actually um, bring um, with them the poor? Which is, I think, something that I have argued Costa Rica did very well by positive discrimination, for example, in the 1970s. And this I want to, again, another parenthesis to say, I think and, um, that we, we run the, when, when we have discussed that the new middle class doesn't have certain values, that's obviously the case. The idea, I think, and the challenge from a policymaking perspective is how to create new incentives, new structures in policymaking and in the policy architecture so that we promote that new classes. How do we think, for example, about the issue of um, how the structure of the program itself will mean that the middle class in the ur ur urban sector is not defending the rural school, but is having incentives, for example, in terms of promoting new funding that indirectly will fund that. that. That the new agenda is not just saying this new middle class is not going to do it, is how do we actually ask with policy create social uh, coalitions. The other element is that this discussion needs to take place in conversation with the role of the elites. In a way, uh, part of thinking about this is are the, are the middle class and the new middle classes looking up or looking down and also are the traditional elites being uh, influenced, harmed, threatened by the traditional, uh, by the new middle class or not. Now, what do I mean by this? Let me just speculate very, uh, to end up speculating. Um, I think, for example, if we take three countries, Chile, Venez Bolivia, and Venezuela, independently of numbers, we have very different dynamics about what that means. So in Chile, basically, what we have is an elite that politically is uh, technocratic, um, economically is still very concentrated on the top one or two percent. And what we there have is a middle class that is actually trying to get um, a space, not through the political system, but through protest, etc. It's very much, if you want, and I don't want to simplify, a middle class that is upset with that elite and is upset that is not being incorporated in that process. And again, I have a previous work from one of my students on the Pinguinos really showed that they were not able to incorporate it into that elite-based politics. Venezuela, I think Venezuela is a clear case of uh, a government that from a very top-down perspective tried to, tried to 
uh, create support for other groups in society, but actually um, harming the traditional middle class and therefore preventing any kind of creation of a cross coalition. And I think actually the most interesting case, the one that actually Costa Rica could inform more, would be, for example, the case of Bolivia, that despite some uh, ethnic elements, of, of course, is one in which the new government is very much represents new middle classes, um, which as um, mine, Patricia Espinosa shows, have new values, uh, but also have a new access to the state because of the Morales administration. I'm thinking about those things, thinking about the interactions between that middle class as a group and others becomes extremely important. Thank you very much.